Okay. Uh, welcome. This is Radio Zaza, short for Radio Zaddy. Uh, I'm Hannah Bestwick, and with me today is Daisy Thurston Gent. Hello. Thank you very much, Daisy TG. How are you doing? Yeah, all right. Thank you. Um, I have uh, moved house this week, um, mm. so perfect perfect time to record a podcast um, when everything is just absolutely chaotic in this bedroom already uh, yes <laughs> yeah i'm in i'm in between all the boxes anyway so none of the blankets were packed away so actually it kind of doesn't look that different except i'm sat on the floor there you go that's all right then how you doing How's some sense been? of normality um it's been all right i think i can't really remember what i've been up to oh daisy i've ordered some rollerblades i told you about this uh, and oh they should God. be arriving tomorrow and i'm really excited it's gonna be it will have been about 10 years since i last went rollerblading <laughs> like i did very very briefly for a few months, went did and did like roller derby, like where you do the quad skating. So it's two at the front, two at the back. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. I didn't, I didn't like it. I didn't like the contact sport. I don't like it. You know, with the brake on the front, and I know it's meant to be so you can like do tippy toe tricks or whatever. Oh, but yeah, you but know, I just like a pair of blades. Blades are fun. They're easy. I think they're easier to like get the hang of the blades, and mm. um, but not as good for tricks and stuff uh, like you know spinning yeah. around and dancing. But I can't dance anyway, so that's not a problem. <laughs> um, but everyone, I really didn't like it when people back me people used to like shoulder barge me out of the way or booty bash me and um eventually it became too much where I got like this guy was in front of me and then he in practice and he just his hip went out and it caught me in the belly and I remember being in the air with my hands outstretched in front of me and I saw both my feet off the floor and I was like oh dear this is not very good and then I like hit the ground your roller really career hard. kind of yeah that's when I was like, I don't think Royal Derby's for me. And I stopped again. Have you got like, like a, um, a kind of a checklist, a queer checklist of activities? You're just kind of making your way slowly. <laughs> no, you know, I'm working roller skating, through. <laughs> podcasting. Yeah, maybe I should make gay bingo uh, and I'll, I'll get to that. And actually, that takes us quite nicely onto what I'm going to talk about today. <gasps> because I'm going to talk about queer people hiking, walking. Why do we like it so much? Um, which oh, again, is one of those queer things on my queer bingo checklist. <laughs> Not so much uh, on, on wheels, but on on. Walk. Exactly, exactly. But yeah, so I, a few times I've been out, uh, out and about doing my thing, uh, walking or just kind of going around a, like going around a park or hiking or like kayaking or whatever. And I just notice, I just notice a lot of, not more queer women than I think I notice when I'm just in a city, even though there's more people around. So realistically, I should, I should recognize Mm. more queer women in my day to day life. But Actually, I have much higher awareness of them, of other queer women when I'm outdoors uh, doing outdoor activities, not in the built environment, like in the natural environment, in forests, in mountains, all that sort of stuff. Mm. And so, like, obviously, I know why I'm there, but I want to know why they're there. <laughs> like, why are they, why are there all these other queer women out It's not the kind of thing you can just bound up to someone with a clipboard and be like, why are you here? Yeah, but also you can't be like, are you gay or just like very practical? Because you don't know the difference. <laughs> really um yeah so i've been yeah i've been wondering why that might be especially as uh i've kind of been like yearning for the outdoors now that Mm. there's not any evening of there's no light in the evening for me to go out on a walk or anything like that so i've been sort of looking wistfully out my window on my lunch break Mm. and and thinking Uh, side note uh, we should definitely if we're going to make t-shirts in the future we should definitely have the quote are you gay or are you practical as our well exactly as our tagline so so yeah so you've been going out huge overlap there venn diagram but um yeah so not as much time in the daylight but yeah i I, so i've done i've done a lot of reading so it turns out there's actually quite a lot of people have written about gay people outdoors um but not not that much about like why queer people like being outdoors but 
you know, I read articles on um, Outside Online by Rebecca uh, Frumkin, on City News 11.30 by Ash Kelly, HCN.org um, by Mika Mayer, and some general uh, information articles from MentalHealth.org, Trevor Project, uh, National Trust, Wikipedia, of course, and uh, one academic article by Kathy Kelleher, which is t- entitled Minority Stress and Health Implications for Lesbian, Gay and Bisexual, Transgender and Questioning LGBTQ People. So yeah, I've been, I've been reading a lot because Good. I've been... Plethora of a reading oh, so list. many. I've just been trying desperately to like what I wanted basically was an article that said queer people like being outdoors because of these five reasons, and then I would read those five reasons and I'd be like, that makes sense. Job done, end of day, close the laptop, walk end of away. episode, go. Yeah. Exactly. But actually that it's not out there. So I've had to do I've done a lot of this kind of thinking myself, which um means that it's quite a lot of it is, is subjective you know it's what I think it's what I feel it's from, from my experience and also from like talking to two or three friends about their experience and their other friends because um obviously we're not allowed to see that many people outside of the house at the moment it's been fairly limited so yeah okay let's first of all let's go back to basics um why like why does anybody like being outdoors and doing outdoorsy stuff so I'm just going to use those terms, outdoors and outdoorsy stuff, to mean uh, outdoor activities that are not sport. Um, so, yeah, like I said, hiking, kayaking, like wild swimming, those sorts of things in a natural environment. And so there's research that shows that looking at a green environment or natural landscape, it lowers the uh, level of stress hormone cortisol in the body. And um, there's also something which is becoming popular, which was originally designed in uh, sort of not designed, but like described in uh, the 80s in japan called uh shirin yoku which means like bathing in the forest atmosphere yes. you, yeah you go through a forest and you just let all these like the sort of natural oils that are dispersed by the plants kind of mm. wash over you and you just let it let nice, it happen nice. and then you see a lot of um like can you know posh candles being called shirin yoku and, oh you? very nice i haven't seen those posh candles clearly i'm not going to the posh enough uh, shout out to earl of east in uh, king's <laughs> cross that, that does a shirin yoku uh, range Ooh. i think very lovely um and yeah so that these these oils you know they help as a defense specifically for the plants for bacteria insects and fungus and things like that but for some reason when we have them on us it um mm. bring it can reduce again stress hormone levels um and also redu- as a result of that it reduces anxiety um blood pressures lowered lots of quite healthy things for the cardiovascular system all of which can be it can be quite a pleasant experience and yeah, so like yeah, exactly. It's signed me up. It sounds wonderful, and it's all. It's taking me. It's taking me back to like the summer and being in the forest in the summer because it's lovely. But being in the forest in the winter can feel like quite a desolate place. But um, yeah, it's you know. So that that just makes it a nice experience for anybody at all. You know, unless. I guess unless you're like really grossed out by mud and leaves and stuff, which some people are, obviously, but that's a different yeah. different uh, problem. Moss and mulch. Ugh, mulch. Horrible word. Never say it. But then there's also, <laughs> okay, there's also benefits of exercise. So hiking and kayaking, these things, you know, there is some physical exertion needed for it. Climbing a tree, obviously, it's, and it's not specifically sports. And for some, you know, for a variety of reasons, um that I will also talk about later queer people don't engage in don't have access to sports in the same way because of a lot of the gender constraints and things like that mm. but it exercise itself is good and does for most people give a really 
nice dose of endorphins like serotonin, dopamine, all these neurotransmitters that are um, useful in reducing pain, easing depression, uh, and reducing anxiety yeah. and that sort of thing. So seems like a really nice time, right? All and the then good stuff, yeah, all the good stuff, and it's just making me want to be outside because anxiety <laughs> and depression are familiar friends of mine. And then to pair with that, you see these two dots. I've connected them. The LGBT community and queer people in general sadly have a much higher instance of poor and bad mental health okay so much we're much more likely to experience yeah. a range of mental health problems depression um higher instances of suicidal ideation self-harm alcohol and substance misuse uh, than the av- average kind of um, non-queer population okay so that makes sense then that a higher prevalence of mental ill health in the queer community would mean that we would also benefit more from being outdoors and like have more of us would have a nice experience being outdoors more of the time and so anything like anything that helps improve our mental health as a community is desperately needed and you know it seems like maybe this was one way to to kind of get some of those benefits for ourselves so that that I feel like is quite a, a basic approach to it and fairly straightforward right but there's I think there's probably quite a few more other reasons there's a lot to be said for just getting away from other people you know other people who are not queer people or even like Mm -hmm. even within the queer community can be a source of stress discomfort uh, rejection discrimination hate crimes come from other people it doesn't come from nowhere Uh, we experience Mm -hmm. them as a result of interactions and so just to be away from other people and somewhere kind of remote and in a, in a, a larger space that feels like we're in control of, uh, maybe maybe not as much in control of, but just in a, in a freer space does bring relief. And I know that you know I feel yeah yeah that's so interesting yeah I, like I feel so much more relaxed and my, I become much less less it sounds weird but much less alert. So I I sometimes feel like on I'm on high alert when I'm in cities or like small towns especially because I'm expecting people to stare or watch and I do you know as a very short-haired quite butch woman I do get stared at sometimes and so when I'm in a field away from people my alertness to that is much reduced Mm. and I feel like I can actually relax a bit more sort of in your authentic self Mm. a bit less you know in danger perhaps yeah and it does feel like you can I can kind of one can kind of let that guard down because there's no one there to be guarded against mm. and i think also like it's very freeing isn't it you know to how kind of being um you know solitary uh you know not necessarily in, in confinement as we are at the moment mm. but you know to have solitary experiences kind of mi- misanthropic experiences outdoors um and you know alone you know without with the kind of reduced you know social aspects it's actually yeah quite freeing and you know quite liberating i guess yeah you're not you don't feel influenced by other people and i was yeah i was going to say that like i know that it maybe this sounds really lame but so i i studied biology at uni and i know that nature isn't a binary thing there's no mm-hmm. even even biologically there's no binary sex male and and female like there's is actually a huge variation between and mm. it's not just determined by very simple xy or xx chromosomes like there's a huge amount of things that go into your biological sex that is way beyond just a binary of of male or female and so i think i have this... yeah human biology Blah. yeah and i just kind of yeah i think it kind of makes me feel much more connected to the natural world than to the the 
the built world by people because actually it doesn't care and it is really really queer and that's you know at a basic level and not just all the queer kind of uh, behaviors that we observe in animals as well like they do all sorts of queer shit it's really fun mm-hmm. um please look into that if you have the time because it's very entertaining um yeah so i just yeah i wonder i think that 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 actually speaks quite a lot to me yeah there's loads of there's loads of queer behavior in animals i mean we could do a whole episode just on that isn't you know it's only humans that sort of complicate things by putting things in these kind of binary mm. uh, and you know binary forms of you know analyzing sex and identity and biology yeah and the more humans the more we know it's the the more obvious it is that nothing is simple you know nothing's as simple as saying you're either one thing or another um Mm. that's very it's a very primitive view but yeah i science science man the science and scientists know that uh yeah so i think that this is this is i don't know how you feel about this i think you know a lot of queer people i know are or have been quite introverted um and can o- only really feel extroverted within a safe environment a queer environment so and the introversion mm. you know as it can be a result of the way they have been treated or fears about how they might be treated or that they might be treated again as a result of, of mm. a previous experience it may also be be because of dysphoria and the fact that if you if you experience dif- dysphoria and you're not out and living as your preferred gender going out of the house and having to like put on this facade of of being something that society is telling you to be can just yeah. it like leave you just not wanting to leave the house because it's easier just to be at home than to go through all of that and experience that kind of very traumatic exper- uh, event of just going outside. Yeah. But it produces, you know, a lot of ag- agoraphobia and, you know, similar conditions like that, right? Mm, exactly. Being outside or exposed, I guess, not even whether it's, a, you know, inside or outside, it's just being exposed to whatever mm. it is that, that's dangerous. Yeah, exactly. And, and, a common kind of response that I hear to people who are introverted, they're like, oh, like, join a club, do a sport, like, get out there, do something structured. But actually, so many queer people, as I mentioned, can't or do not play sports because it has it has really tight gender constraints of, of like, men's sport or women's sport. And there's no, there's nothing in between. And there's also all these, like, very difficult things in the media as well about, like, people who are intersex or, or trans people. How do they fit into it? And sadly, as well, um, competitive sports do have overtones of, of homophobia and racism, sexism, transphobia, like all of this that, that you hear about in the news, you hear about from friends, you hear the way people talk to each other during sports that, to be honest, means that we don't want to join in, you know, and therefore yeah. we don't get the benefits of community that you can get from sports if you are in that crowd you know Um, more isolating exactly further isolating us so i just think that like going outside doing outside the doorsy things like climbing trees exploring hiking building shelters things that you know you don't have to be in a in a big group you don't have to be in a big team to enjoy this kind of outdoor activity that gets you away from the built environment gets you outside and excited about the world it also gives you a bit of a break from staring at screens all the time like it is just it's a way to engage in in exercise without having to do a sport you know and actually on that note I was so one of the people I spoke to in my research for this episode was telling me that like so she likes she likes being outside she likes being outdoors but not in the and she she said not in the hands on way and I was like I don't really know what that means <laughs> I think that I think that means building things or touching stuff but she she was like I like I can tie hands. up my shoes but I, you know 
yeah. She was like, I like climbing trees. I like hiking, um, you know, running around in shorts because for her, it is the kind of boyish childhood that she wished she'd had. And she didn't have that for more than one reason. Like it wasn't just because she was a girl, but because she was a girl was a big part of it. And I think that um, there's a big, a big part of wanting to fit into society initially that means that queer people who do have like what are sometimes called tomboyish tendencies can sometimes not do that. But I think a lot of us queer people, because it takes a while to learn who we are, learn more about who we are in this world... Um, Mm. there's a real urge to try and get back that childhood that we didn't have. And for a lot of us, that is... reclaiming it, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And for a lot of us, that is going outside and climbing trees and being childish. And that's fine and that's nice. Yeah, the element of sort of innocence and play that was sort of, I don't know, lost or overlooked, maybe. Mm, Exactly, yeah. And I I relate to it a bit because, like, so most of my childhood was outside um, because that was the only thing to do was go outside and then come back when it's dinner time uh, but I you know I I got into trouble I climbed trees I fell out of trees I built fires I accidentally set things on fire and put out the fires and like had that kind of <laughs> what was probably quite a boyish childhood but that wasn't the only thing like my parents did buy me dolls and babies and like prams and things and they wanted me uh, my mum desperately wanted me to have a very girly gentle childhood but that just wasn't for me and Mm. but because it was seen as kind of gender non-conforming there was an like an undertone to some of it you know when I'd go off fishing my mum I feel like she was just like why can't you just be normal but yeah it, it, it was what I wanted I wanted probably what was a butch childhood so I'm not sure yeah and then you know along with that it's like I was thinking about this and I actually would really like to get your opinion on this this particular point because I'm not sure how how it comes across so I think that this kind of reclaiming of childhood specifically like a, a boyish childhood or a boy's childhood I think is particularly important for like trans men and queer women who may not have been encouraged to exercise at all or to like do boyish things when they were younger and weren't allowed to kind of build muscle or develop a physique that they wanted were discouraged you know especially obviously before uh, before transitioning or beginning a transition for trans men and so like I said like it's a chance to finally have that childhood that you should have had when you were younger and then also with the with the building up of strength and like becoming muscular and and trusting your body and I don't know flexing and building muscle and like becoming kind of outdoorsy and uh Mm. like a like a woodsman I don't know I just feel like there's I'm not sure this idea is fully developed for me yet but I just think that there's really something there to being to yeah to just really deeply playing that that kind of role and to allow yourself a role that was maybe sort of denied or or unobtainable when you're when mm. you're younger. Yeah, there's a huge fascina- fascination. I mean, you know, why do why do dykes why are they always wearing uh, sort of lumberjack plaid shirts in every movie and rom com ever? <laughs> you know, is it? Be- it's a it's real because, stereotype, you know, isn't it? Yeah, it's a stereotype, and it's maybe you know, I don't assume all lesbians to chop wood. But, I'm but apparently sure that... straight people do, like... Yeah, but apparently there must be this kind of draw to that. And I'm sure that it's because, like, the queer women that don't want to go out and chop wood and build a wooden cabin with their own bare hands, probably those more femme-presenting women go under the radar a bit more. Mm. But yeah, there's 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 a real idea there for me about just, like, 
finally taking that chance to to get your childhood as you wanted it and it's a mm. shame that it has to be now rather than when we were young and when it would have been like yeah. the time for us to do that but there's nothing to say that we can't have it now it's sort of a mix between like embracing you know masculinity or or femininity whichever one mm. it is denied um and kind of challenging it maybe yeah yeah exactly you really know which one it would be mm. as well with that like i think that an outdoor environment is actually really good for building community. I gen like I genuinely think this regardless, but of like sexual orientation, gender identity. I think that just actually being outside, hiking together, like walking together, is a really lovely way to connect with people. Like walking somewhere side by side with someone, I have had like. I've talked to people about things that I never thought they'd say to me or that, that they'd never be able to voice or that, that mm. they've never felt they've been able to talk about because they are, you're not confronted so directly by looking at someone face to face. And even if mm. it takes you hours to say something, because you're walking somewhere, you can walk for hours yeah. in silence and that's okay. If it takes you hours to talk, it takes you hours to talk. That's the activity rather than the kind of emotional excavation let's say exactly there's a lot and... about um, neurodiversity in that isn't there about about walking um, and not having to necessarily look at someone in the eye and you mm. know takes the pressure off yeah and it's i think there's my partner was telling me about uh recent research that was showing that queer people are more likely to be on the autistic spectrum than the rest of the population and so and, and actually one of the things that people say about being on uh, the spectrum is is a, a dislike for eye contact and i i don't know if that's anything to do with it, but i do just on on the whole in general find that people talk more easily when they're when they're not mm. looking at you directly because it can it can feel very confrontational yeah. not always the case but it, it can and you know i just i just i just want more queer people outdoors there are outdoor hiking groups walking groups like groups that will teach you to build a fire and how to mm-hmm. uh, hang a hammock or something like that and and i i just think that there's, maybe it's time for the cis white straight like super fit man to get out of the picture a bit more like on instagram oh my god like the mm-hmm. amount yeah of like straight white middle class couples I've seen with vans having the adventure of a lifetime is infuriating yeah. like that's fine for them but also where are my queers doing it why like yeah. why don't we get to be in this space as much you know mm. um and we need we need it we need it as much as anybody else and if not more right like <laughs> if if not more exactly like oh and in the pandemic as well you know the indoor spaces are either not open or where they are it's not really actually that safe so mm. we should we are entitled to be to like to the outdoor spaces just as much as anybody else and maybe we should start moving Definitely. into them more you know we we yeah, deserve we to be out yeah they've closed down our, our dingy bars and our kind of drag theater spaces so you know we've got to take the outdoors what else is exactly what else is left and we should be encouraged and see ourselves there right exactly so let's i i just think that we i don't know i think i've been feeling a little bit nostalgic a little bit childhood childish probably because of buying the rollerblades as well i've just been thinking about the things that i used to love doing like i used to build dens climb trees make campfires and i think we should all be out singing hiking camping like just getting away yes. from the city because i know and i know that we all come to this we like not all of us but like we come to the city to find community but not all of us are built for the city and Mm. maybe i don't know i just want every day to be lesbian day on the mountain or whatever like it's just (laughs) let's all go let's all go and i will meet you on the mountains that sounds yeah i mean so there are a couple of groups that i've i've tried to i tried to join um recently there was there's a cycling group called um pride out i think it's not dykes on bikes then 
it's not dogs on bikes but we could set that up you know um and there's queer gears which i think is in london that's um, cool yeah and i think yeah there's definitely you know space in the market for a sort of a queer walking group and and you know den making um i own a fire pit you probably have a fire pit you know let's, I d- let's... obviously i have a fire pit daisy <laughs> <laughs> tick from the list uh yeah you know i think there should be out outdoorsiness encouraged and um, yeah i think there's i've seen like a queer picnic group in in kew gardens for example oh, I've, that I've is wanted so to just like cute. edge over it's adorable isn't it and yeah, yeah just want there's... To be, like edging over saying like me too exactly and some of the so one of the groups that i read about initially i think in the first article that i mentioned talks about this it's not like a hiking group but it's a training program to train queer people to be like um mountain guides and to read maps and to oh, build great. fires and how to bring people down from the mountain or how to like do first aid specific queer inclusive first aid you know um mm-hmm. and it, it's it was really it was really beautiful because then what they're trying what they're trying to do is is get is like upskill queer people to get jobs in outdoor industry which is yeah, yeah. so heavily dominated by like cis het people and then Definitely. once you get people in at a like a guide level, then people see themselves as guides. And then like you kind of, you know, it goes from there and it's a free training program, I think. Or it's funded by a charity. And it was, um, I just thought that was awesome. And definitely we should have that sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, that here. sounds amazing. What was that? Yeah, definitely need to find out what that was called. Um, mm. And and pop it in the pop it in the description uh it's called the venture out project the venture out project an organization that builds community by leading wilderness trips for queer people as well yeah awesome really awesome great there was a sort of artist call out i saw a little while back um which was um it was a call out for queer people uh and it was this kind of little woodland sort of retreat and it was essentially just kind of sleeping outdoors and making art and um, mm. you know li- you know sleeping in hammocks and and kind of like a residency similar to this but sort of centered around creating creating work I guess but I was just like this mm. sounds excellent um, yeah and just wanted all of you know everyone I knew to to apply and then you know we kind of see through see through the next lockdown with a bunch of bunch of queers um, exactly <laughs> in our little woodland uh, sanctuary yeah and if we could all build our own cabin together that would be wonderful and the gayest cabin you ever did see yeah i think there's definitely something about you know doing it by hand and doing it yourself and yeah so rarely do you see kind of queer you know queers taking that taking those opportunities because they're just not handed out that that freely right you know the narrative mm. is if you're a kind of um you know het, het man you are the world's your oyster and you can go out and you can go off alone into the world and be fine yeah unless you're in there's that the as well isn't it um, yeah. but like essentially you can go and you're sort of not really in danger you know we don't have mm. bears here well we have the gay kind oh yeah we have bears uh yeah i actually when i was last in the lake district i was actually the last like three times i went to the lake district to see family i was like you know what they need they need a queer guest house we're doing queer hikes you know who would like to do that? Me. I would like to do that. I would like to open a queer <laughs> guest house. All my friends. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Daisy. Um, yeah. So I, my dad, actually, it was last weekend just being, I've been a couple of times since then, but at the weekend, my dad had posted up his bat detector. It doesn't like tell you where the bat is, but it lowers the, the frequency or it adjusts the frequency of their echolocation so you can hear it, so you can hear them clicking past you. Um, yeah yeah in the dark um debbie and i went out like we cycled through some of the fields by the canal and then we sat down with the bat detector and we started like waiting to listen out for the bats 
And then this little boy with his dad cycled up and they stopped in the same place. And the little boy must have been four, five years old. He's like, are you, are you here looking for bats too? We were like, yeah, yeah, we are. And he was like, oh, "Oh, I love bats. And he had on, he had on a homemade bat cape that he'd worn. Not like Batman, but just a cape to make him look like a bat. Um, He had a, a special song that he'd made up to entice the bats down that he kept singing and then he showed fleeting interest in my bat detector because I don't think I quite explained how, what it was well but he <laughs> I, he was so funny and showed you how to use it and... exactly and I um, amazing just as he was about to go he was like when will we be back dad and he was like oh I don't know maybe next weekend or something and he was like okay I'll be here next weekend maybe I'll see you then and I was like alright maybe I'll see you then see you later mate have a nice time <laughs> it oh was the best thing that happened to me all week. It what was so community. cute. Yeah. Oh my it was god, really proper cute. little community of bat watchers and Oh my god, he was adorable. That's adorable. <laughs> it's just another another thing about being outdoors that I like. Right, so so something I found interesting about what you what you were talking about was to do with the sort of kind of identity and, you know, prescribed um sort of gendered identities. Um mm. that actually leads me on quite nicely to talk about uh, uh, my topic this week, um, which is basically a kind of an in-depth kind of art history lesson about the artists Claude Caja and mm. Marcel Moore. I don't know if you've heard of them. Um, no, never. Don't know many they artists. Are, um, don't know many artists. Um, and I didn't, I don't, I don't either. Um, art history is certainly not my, my strong suit. Um, mm. But uh, basically, they're a pair of artists who um, were known for their kind of avant-garde illustrations rebellious writings and self-portraits encapsulating this kind of dynamic close partnership Mm. uh, and lifelong exploration of gender and sexual identity were they together yes so they were sort of lifelong companions but also lovers and also yeah also work together uh, and live together and more on that later um spoiler alert um so what particularly interests me uh, is that now kind of decades after their deaths um, there is this kind of growing following among art historians, feminists, and people in the LGB, transgender, and queer community. So I just, yeah, I just wanted to talk a little bit about their life uh, and the work of these two individuals uh, that I think every budding queer historian should know about. Mm. So in a nutshell, uh, Claude uh, Caja uh, was born uh, Lucy Schwab in uh, Nantes in France. There's going to be a lot of bad French mispronunciation by the way that's okay i wouldn't know what they were supposed to be so that's fine <laughs> claude Cahan. so uh born in france in 1894 and uh they were a writer and performance artist who alongside a creative partner marcel moore uh became this kind of uh, theatrical collaborative duo who produced some highly political you know very compelling uh photographic artworks and writings during the course of their lives together sort of between the the world wars um mm. so what a time to be alive yeah uh, under their ambiguously gendered uh, pseudonyms claude Caron and marcel moore became sort of partners in life love and art and the photographs often kind of depict uh Caron and moore in a very in a variety of uh, sort of masculine androgynous and feminine personas uh usually set in the kind of stark uh, minimally staged scenes about their home and kind of 
maybe at the beach um, or in graveyards or things like that. Mm. So it's worth mentioning that obviously in France during the 19, uh, during the 20s and 30s, it wasn't that common uh, to kind of sit outside of the gender binaries. So unfortunately, there is a lot of evidence to suggest that, you know, the pair have actually been left out and even excluded from a lot of historical kind of reference points. Wow. Due to the pair not quite fitting in either ca- category of male or female. They were sort of left out of, you know, feminine art, uh, art archives and also kind of disregarded by the great kind of men of the surrealist period for example so they didn't fit into either category because they were were actually quite fluid in how they presented and often adopted kind of a little bit of both and sometimes neither for example so the chosen um forename uh, claude in french can mean either male or female or in uh, Karen's case both mm. um, so I, I guess like I should say really kind of a note on pronouns obviously we must keep in mind that like, the language we use today is was not accessible for these two artists at the time so a lot of the terminology we use now to describe fluid gender identity like you know terms like uh, non-binary for example um, kind of lacks historical credibility because they just weren't words people used um, yeah, so they'd never describe themselves as that. It would be us work, trying to work out. How. Retrospectively, yeah. And also, you know, the fact that French is a heavily gendered language anyway, and mm. that's going to play into how the pair are documented and how they were perceived by other artists and, and peers at the time. Mm. Um, so, you know, would they now identify as non-binary? Perhaps, who can say? In a lot of kind of recent exhibitions, Claude is often referred to as they-them, but, you know, whereas in more of the kind of historical archives, uh, still labelled as she or simply, you know, a lot of the time the archives just kind of use their chosen names of Claude and um, Marcel. Mm-hmm. Probably, yeah, depending on where I've got um, my different sources, it kind of, you know, pronouns may be a bit, you know, it's definitely something important to consider because, you know, we can and, and we should when discussing any historical queer individual. But we have to acknowledge that, you know, these terms are constantly adapting. But there is a there is a quote that I found from um, Caja's own work, own writing, which I think sums it up quite uh, quite nicely. Uh, they write mm. masculine, feminine, but it depends on the situation. Neuter is the only gender that always suits me. You know, it's pretty, pretty mm. revolutionary, you know, to actually put it yeah. into words, this kind of word neuter with regards to gender without, you know, a, a, a clear um, societal definition available. Mm. So a lot of what I'm going to reference in this brief history lesson uh, is going to be pulled from uh, the brilliantly helpful zine. It's called Another Mask, and it's put together by Livy, Drusilla and Anna George, who are kind of modern creative duo uh, with a keen interest in queer history. Um, and they actually put together this really incredible resource after somewhat of a, a sort of pilgrimage to Jersey, uh, where the Kawa Moore archives are actually based. Mm. So big shout out to them for their extensive research. Um, you can find the zine on, um, I got it from their Etsy site, which is Loosh Press. Um, and there's a bunch of other great queer zines on that. Nice. Um, so, uh, so, here's, so I'm kind of going to go through the uh, the timeline, um, pull out some significant events and then have a little, have a little chat. And I didn't know anything about them until I ordered this zine and... I just find them absolutely fascinating. That's really um, so cool. So hopefully you yeah. will too. Uh, so significant event for our uh, for our timeline, uh, 1917. And after obtaining a divorce from her mother, Caja's father remarried Madame Malab, uh, a widow who had a daughter by the name of Suzanne. In the writings, um, Cahan compares this encounter to meeting this, this person as being struck by lightning, which I think is wow. sort of incredibly poetic. And Cahan uh, regarded Malab as, Suzanne Malab, as a somewhat of an alter ego and always and kind of often referred to her as uh, l'autre moi, which is uh, the other me. 
the other self. So this kind of this entrance of um, Suzanne Malab into Karen's life when she was just 15 years old, it permanently changed it. And the, and the pair fell madly in love with each other and oh, wow. um, became pretty much inseparable from, from that young age. And, you know, under this convenient guise of, um, you know, family structure... Um, they could begin to actually, you know, build a life together. And they were often perceived as stepsisters when required. So in a lot of documentation, they're referred to as the sisters or the stepsisters, uh, the surrealist sisters, uh, or gal pals, as we would refer to today. Obviously, yeah. Gals being pals. So just gals being pals. So Suzanne Malab, uh, who took on the name... Marcel Moore, uh, worked in illustration and graphic design, producing work for fashion houses, as well as um, obviously the collaborations with uh, Caja. Mm-hmm. Um, and in 1920, the pair moved to Paris, uh, very sexy, sexy, and became part of the kind of extraordinary <laughs> avant-garde lesbian subculture that was already kind of thriving there, uh, creating work alongside, you know, the likes of Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas, for example, you know, all those great kind of lesbian pioneers of mm. um in the 1920s paris so i've got a bit here about uh, some of the work that they put together um just because it's it's pretty cool and any and a lot of it was just kind of left out of queer art history i guess or art history for being too queer <laughs> too queer to be documented mm. so claude carat published uh, this manuscript called heroines in 1925 which was a series of uh, monologues, 15 monologues written in the voices of major women of literature and history, such as the Virgin Mary, uh, Sappho, mm. Cinderella, Delilah, Helen of Troy, you know, really cool women to kind of bring forward into the limelight. And in 1929, they translated uh, Havelock Ellis's controversial theories, which introduced the possibility of a third sex. Um, 1929, uh, really cool. And sort of in the third sex unites uh, masculine and feminine traits, but exists sort of as neither one or the other and so they translated this text is uh when was the text written oh i don't know when the um when the original one was no uh, that was it, written that's fine i was just because i was just thinking that like it was re- it was like revolutionary for france at the time but obviously there's there's native cultures mm-hmm. that do have these ideas of additional genders or sexes at this already but like they really were con- like up against something very societally ingrained at that time yeah yeah so i think the reason i find this quite like sort of uh, inspiring is because you know these are some of the terms that we're only sort of in the west coming to it feels like people are just coming to terms with now as you mentioned like it wasn't societally ingrained um as it may have been around in other parts of the world at that time um you know france was and much of europe it was very much based in the kind of binaries of male and female masculine feminine um so for these um for these people to sort of put forward the idea that and to kind of live live the idea um that kind of gender expression could be a sort of performative aspect is is quite you know quite cool and um you know very bold and they you know they just kind of lived their life and and were just you know just just working at a million miles per hour and not really giving a damn about what mm. um, people thought of them. Prolific, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And uh, Cara described themselves as a surrealist, which is uh, obviously an art term which you probably have heard of, but was actually quite separated from the main surrealist group at the time, uh, which was led by André Breton, because it was you know, very much a male-dominated group, um, and no women mm. uh, were official members. Like absolutely none. So, you know, while they kind of worked alongside this group, it was, you know, they weren't ever really acknowledged as being you know official parts of the scene and you know often the function of um an image of of women in surrealist art was as a role of kind of a muse or a child or a kind of femme fatale you know very Mm. passive role 
Um, and even, you know, and women's bodies at the time were, um, especially in art, were treated very much as like aesthetic objects and um, to inspire the ma- male gaze and for their desire. You know, so there's this real problem of, of of erasure within this realist art scene for these two. And as I said, often omitted from male anthologies and forgotten about in female archives as they were just, you know, often perceived to be men or to assume to have died in the war so a lot of their work has just kind of been glossed over or lost anyway but more, more on that later mm. um so brief art history lesson um because i didn't know you know what the hell surrealism was really thank you i was gonna ask so one, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um in a nutshell uh, one of the most interesting pieces of concepts about surrealism is that the dream is kind of believed to be superior to uh, the waking state fantasy more potent than reality and the unconscious mind is said to reveal more than conscious thought so this kind of mm. dreamlike potential is is regarded at like a much higher status than um you know reality if you can yeah it's very freudian yeah exactly and there's loads of you know writing at the time which goes on that similar notion and um Cahan, uh, once exclaimed the happiest moment of my life the dream imagining that i am someone else acting my mm. favorite role and this is something that they did throughout their entire life both in personal and in you know in professional work mm. was Dali a, a surrealist yeah i think i think you would definitely classify that as um yeah because he got his I ideas think. from dreams didn't he i'm just thinking of him yeah because so i remember someone telling me that he used to like fall asleep on chairs holding spoons with a metal plate underneath so that as soon as he fell asleep the spoon would drop onto the metal plate and wake him up so that he could remember the really vivid dream and oh great yeah, great technique yeah exactly uh yeah guess, carry on sorry yeah this kind of dream is something you you, you seek and is sought after especially for artists mm. so back to paris uh in 1935 along with uh andre breton and uh georges bataille Caron von co-founded uh contre attack which was an activist group um, organised mm. by the Surrealists uh, in response, basically, to the rise of Hitler and uh, the spread of fasc- fascism throughout France at the time. Well, yeah. um, so, you know, always there's this kind of blurring of activism and artistry. And, um, you know, eventually Cahan and Moore uh, Mou- left Paris completely, probably due to this rise in homophobia and anti-Semitism, to be honest, because Cahan was actually, was a secular Jew. Mm. So they, they completely, they left Paris and they uh, they moved to uh, the British Isle of Jersey off the northern coast of France. And this is where the world's leading collection of their work is still held today. Wow. So this is where the uh, the makers of the zine went. And the pair had this kind of long association with the island. Uh, they used to go there for childhood holidays and they spent kind of whole summers there. So, you know, it was a really important uh, place for them, um, very outdoorsy. Uh, the sisters uh, purchased this house right on the bay and moved there permanently in 1937. And they kind of used the garden and the house uh, and, the, and the bay area um, for kind of settings for their photography work. Yeah, so w- while they lived in Jersey, they were kind of known generally uh, either by their birth names or um, simply as the sisters hmm. and they kind of gained this reputation for uh, strange behaviour you know such <laughs> as taking their cat for a walk on, on its lead and wearing trousers um, you know Goodness all those me. crazy things crazy things that seeing could... both legs move independently no sir no sir <laughs> exactly um, so there's this really interesting relationship with um, with Jersey and this was the place where Kaha claimed to have first to have loved herself for the first time which is something that they wrote in 1930 um so they're often you know depicted this really 
uh, enigmatic gender-defying couple um, hopping about the island, taking photographs, nude bathing, wearing trousers, wearing <laughs> theatrical masks, um, and walking cats on leads. Um, which sounds pretty idyllic to be mad. honest. <laughs> but, um, Absolute mad lads. But yeah, mad lads. Um, but we have to remember this. This is the mm. this was the thirties, and obviously homophobia and anti-Semitism are huge things that are going to impact their life. Mm rife exactly and you know and growing and and the bloody nazis are just around the corner right so Mm. back to the timeline um so they lived a fairly peaceful lived fairly peacefully in jersey for a little while and then in 1940 the germans invaded and uh jersey fell under nazi occupation 1940 so at which time kaha and moors uh they really set to work and actually began their active resistance efforts on the island mm. of Jersey. Uh, and that lasted for a period of about four years. They were sort of um, creating anti-fascist artwork and, you know, actually resisting, you know, not just kind of talking about activism, but actually sort of living it and kind of dedicating their practice and their and their lives to it. Moore had learnt German as a child um, and so could kind of translate uh, BBC radio broadcasts. Mm. And the pair began to distribute these these anti-fascist leaflets all across the island um, with the intent to demoralise the occupying German army and essentially just encourage the soldiers to bugger off. So these these flyers would have kind of anti-Nazi slogans, satirical sketches. Obviously Moore was a graphic, um, an illustrator, a graphic designer. And so that, and they'd leave these little bits of um, anti-Nazi propaganda kind of on um, car windscreens or hidden in cigarette packets or in in between newspapers or even slipped into soldiers pockets if they were feeling particularly daring which is like crazy <laughs> dangerous super yeah. badass and they always signed off these leaflets with the signature as uh, the soldier with no name to give the impression that they'd been written by um, a german officer yeah crazy oh my god super crazy uh, scandalous years, scandalous so four years this went on and uh, uh sadly uh in July 1944, uh, they were arrested by the Gestapo. A uh, bit oh, of a spanner shit. in the works. Shit, yeah. Mm. Um, and they were charged and sentenced to six months imprisonment for listening to the radio. Very naughty. And actually, they were given the death penalty for inciting German troops. Oh my god. And with characteristic dry humour, Kaa is said to have asked the judge which sentence they should serve first. <laughs> <laughs> which is absolutely brilliant so, oh my god so fucking you know terrifying times so fucking witty but terrifying yeah. i mean what else are you gonna say you know you've just been you know sentenced to six months imprisonment and and, and death so in total the nazi court uh mm. collected over 350 of uh these distributed objects and so the trial actually became kind of inadvertently this an accidental installation of uh their life and work so, oh my god presided exactly. over by a so, judge you know, the, uh, the German authorities they actually refused to believe that it was the work of just two sisters and they insisted there must have been a far greater number of co-conspirators and you know actually Cowan and Moore would have liked lots more people to join their political rally but you know a lot of people were they didn't really manage to it was just sort of them making these flyers and slipping them into newspapers mm. but quite an impressive you know body of of work um just for two for two people and yeah. uh so i had a look at some of some of their um some of their portraits some of the self portraits um from the time and um there was one from 1945 uh, quite a daring one which shows uh claude 
in um, with the sort of Nazi eagle insignia clenched between their teeth. Um, so really, you know, really daring, considering wow. they were like, you know, locked up or whatever. Or maybe this was afterwards. Um, um, yeah, so they were they were imprisoned for uh, nearly a year um, in total. And the Nazis destroyed God. much of their artwork because they considered it to be pornographic. You know, obviously they were, there was a lot of nude nudity and, and sort of gender bending and rebellion. Um, they considered it pornographic. But the pair did manage to luckily escape execution and they were eventually released from prison when Jersey was was liberated. Mm, good thing they didn't serve Good the job they didn't do that first, first yeah. So, you know, really... Oh God, it's just... You know, it's cr- crazy if you... Really fascinating. fascinating life. Um, unfortunately, obviously, during imprisonment, uh, Moore actually made an unsuicidal uh, suicide attempt, and it's clear that sort of neither of them really fully recovered mm. uh, from that time spent in cap- captivity, and it very much changed their their later their artwork in their later years. Kaha, in particular, becomes really preoccupied with with the notion of death. And there's a series of photographs called uh, Le Chemin de Chat from 1948, which is um, depicts a kind of white-haired, barefooted person, blindfolded, holding a cat on a leash and kind of being led down this narrow path- pathway to a, a cemetery. Uh, and then in 1953, a year before she, uh, they died, um, in another portrait, Caja uh, is shown blindfolded uh, again and clutching a large bag, but this time uh, following a cat, leading, d- leading them down a precarious dangerous narrow kind of shoot evidently to um their death so a lot of yeah the artwork the artwork really took a turn and became a lot darker a lot more uh, involved with the notion of death and mm. and then uh, when when claude uh, died in 1954 at the age of 60 uh, marcel moore moved to a smaller house on the island uh, where she eventually, uh, sadly, took her own life in 1972. Um, and the pair are actually buried together um, oh, at wow. St. Brillard's Church, um, where a lot of the photography takes place. So if you see photos of um, Claude Carr in, sort of in graveyards or w- amongst tombstones or in the garden, it's often set in this, in this churchyard. So it's not, you know, it keeps, wow. it keeps it on the island, and the island is extremely significant to the pair of them. But, you know, in the course of their career, they really tackled a lot of uh, quite complex subjects that, as I said, like in the West, we're only really starting to kind of scratch the surface on um, and appreciate um, today with the aid of terminology and, and language to do with gender mm. neutralism and fluidity. And um, the pair actually, you know, Kaha through photography and, and, and writing kind of was really trying to engage uh, their audience in sort of reevaluating the possibilities of what a woman might be. And, you know, you could compare the work to people like, I don't know, Frida Kahlo, who was sort of working around the same time, but in, in, in Mexico, mm. uh, Lorna Simpson or Cindy Sherman, you might have heard of, who again used themselves as models in their own work, um, but as kind of performed characters. Uh, the use of mask and oh, masquerade, yeah. of mirrors, um, and yeah, and the self as a kind of object yeah and then you know look, these photos are really interesting and i'm gonna i'm gonna try and share them with you i haven't got the zine to hand you know a lot of the images uh mm. i actually googling i had a look i had a quick quick google and they're very they're absolutely fascinating um but yeah if you if you could share a couple of really, a couple of really my favorite images were um yeah car actually often erased the kind of visible traces of femininity uh by shaving um the head wearing masculine clothes and avoiding kind of any makeup a lot of the time maybe obscuring the breasts obscuring eyes you know through through the wider collection of of portraits they're Mm. all quite different the entire concept of a kind of fixed identity and strict gender binary is completely undercut uh Mm. there's one 
where they are dressed as uh, it's actually the front cover of the zine but they're dressed um as a sort of cartoon like bodybuilder i don't know if you've seen that image and uh with the kind no, of i haven't that sounds great bell weights kind of toy weight the um, old barbell yeah claude uh, wears a vest and tights and shorts and the kind of face is very made up uh cheeks accentuated with hearts and the hair is slicked into those kind of kiss curls um very popular in the 20s um the oh, nipples yeah. and pouting lips are quite darkened you know for emphasis and uh on the on the on the chest mm. across um the kind of flat androgynous chest is the is the word um other words i am in training do not kiss me uh super badass um, <laughs> that's so good it's really like treating mm. the body like a canvas just like it can be you can be anything you want like it's it's very free yeah definitely almost, really you know? you know really bold for a non male to to do at the time you know a lot of even in surrealist art you yeah. know the kind of female body would be you know headless in order to kind of you know remove any kind of identity or i don't know pers- persona you know it was just seen as the body was a kind of a topic for the male gaze um a lot of the time mm. whereas you know oh, yeah. and, and more and um, and other artists who are similar to them you know considered this self-identification as a kind of performative element and you know it was a never-ending project it was something they worked on for their entire Mm. lives yeah they made themselves the subject Mm. rather than the object there it feels like that's really interesting um and then a kind of final quote i have uh from from kaha's writing as sort of explaining uh this lifelong performative project was uh under this mask another mask I will never finish removing all these faces. So it's kind of talking about this, the person and identity as a kind of layered self. And um, yeah, yeah. so there we have it. Yeah. You know, the life and work of Claude Carr and Marcel Moore. Um, there's so much I could say about these two. Um, if you do want to know more, there's obviously a huge amount online, um, as well as the zine that I mentioned yeah. um, from Louche Press and, of course, uh, the Jersey Heritage Archives, mm. which uh, we should totally totally visit if we want to do a spot of bathing and, and yeah rambling we should in the <laughs> are we going naked bathing it's the only way to really experience what life was like i, I feel like maybe um yeah no that was amazing absolutely they fascinating are, i was you know i was going to talk so about much. lots of other artists but actually those two yeah it's just really nice to go and go deep isn't it and go into the life of just two you know really mm. extraordinary people and and just overlooked as well like they deserve the time and they deserve the attention. It's such such a shame. Like what incredible lives they led. So like bold and brave yeah. in in many ways. Not least putting like anti-Nazi propaganda into Nazi soldiers' uniforms. They were also living their kind of I'm going to sound really lame here mm. authentic lives as like a queer couple, a gender queer mm. couple, and just like that's really awesome that they were doing that then. And it's such a shame that like you know I feel like if I'd been taught about people like that in school maybe. You know, it wouldn't have taken me so long to get to where I am now. But the fact is, like, it's almost like they pretend that no one was queer before 2000. So, yeah, it's, it's really it's really nice to kind of go back and look at these things. And, and it's great that they've got this, this education this, now. Yeah, this queer following that has kind of come out of the woodwork and, you know, way more information has been pulled out and, and put into the archives and re-looked at and, and pulled to the limelight. And, um, yeah, I think it's I think it's great. And I would love to know more about their lives and i'm sure there's plenty of other people operating at the same time whether in paris or in in jersey or or, or wherever um mm. yeah just yeah. gotta find them just gotta find them yeah they're mm. out there they're out there all right thank you very much for listening uh i've been hannah bestwick and this has been daisy tg with me uh thank you everyone for listening cheers take care Bye-bye. bye bye